Chapter Thirteen of the Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeanie Whitfield. The Uncommercial Traveller by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirteen. Night Walks. Some years ago, a temporary inability to sleep, referable to a distressing impression caused me to walk about the streets all night, for a series of several nights. The disorder might have taken a long time to conquer, if it had been faintly experimented on in bed, but it was soon defeated by the brisk treatment of getting up directly after lying down, and going out, and coming home tired at sunrise. In the course of those nights I finished my education in a fair amateur experience of houselessness, my principal object being to get through the night, the pursuit of it brought me into sympathetic relations with people who have no other object every night in the year. The month was March, and the weather damp, cloudy, and cold. The sun not rising before half-past five, the night perspective looked sufficiently long at half-past twelve, which was about my time for confronting it. The restlessness of a great city and the way in which it tumbles and tosses before it can get to sleep formed one of the first entertainments offered to the contemplation of us houseless people it lasted about two hours we lost a great deal of companionship when the late public-houses turned their lamps out and when the potman thrust the last brawling drunkards into the street but stray vehicles and stray people were left to us after that if we were very lucky, a policeman's rattle sprang, and a fray turned up. In general, surprisingly little of this diversion was provided, except in the Haymarket, which is the worst-kept part of London, and about Kent Street, in the borough, and along a portion of the line of the old Kent Road. The peace was seldom violently broken, but it was always the case that London, as if in imitation of individual citizens belonging to it, had expiring fits and starts of restlessness. After all seemed quiet, if one cab rattled by, half a dozen would surely follow, and the houselessness even observed that intoxicated people appeared to be magnetically attracted towards each other, so that we knew when we saw one drunken object staggering against the shutters of a shop that another drunken object would stagger up before five minutes were out to fraternize or fight with it. When we made a divergence from the regular species of drunkard, the thin-armed, puff-faced, leaden-lipped gin-drinker, and encountered a rarer specimen of a more decent appearance, fifty to one, but that specimen was dressed in soiled mourning. As the street experienced in the night, so the street experienced in the day. The common folk who come unexpectedly into a little property, come unexpectedly into a deal of liquor. At length these flickering sparks would die away, worn out. The last veritable sparks of waking life trailed from some late pieman or hot potato man, and London would sink to rest, and then the yearning of the houseless mind would be for any sign of company, any light place, any movement, anything suggestive of any one being up, nay, even so much as awake, for the houseless eye looked out for lights and windows. Walking the street under the pattering rain, 
houselessness would walk and walk and walk, seeing nothing but the interminable tangle of streets save at a corner. Here and there, two policemen in conversation, or the sergeant or inspector looking after his men. Now and then in the night, but rarely, houselessness would become aware of a furtive head peering out of a doorway a few yards before him, and coming up with the head would find a man standing bolt upright to keep within the doorway's shadow, and evidently intent upon no particular service to society. Under a kind of fascination, and in a ghostly silence suitable to the time, houselessness and this gentleman would eye one another from head to foot, and so, without exchange of speech, part mutually suspicious. Drip, 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 from ledge and coping, splash from pipes and water-spouts, and by and by the houseless shadow would fall upon the stones that paved the way to Waterloo Bridge. It being in the houseless mind to have a half-penny worth of excuse for saying good-night to the toll-keeper, and catching a glimpse of his fire, a good fire, and a good greatcoat, and a good woolen neck-shawl were comfortable things to see in conjunction with the toll-keeper. Also his brisk wakefulness was excellent company when he rattled the change of the halfpence down upon the metal table of his, like a man who defied the night, with all its sorrowful thoughts and didn't care for the coming of dawn. There was need of encouragement on the threshold of the bridge, for the bridge was dreary. The chopped-up murdered man had not been lowered with a rope over the parapet when those nights were. He was alive, and slept then quietly enough, most likely, and undisturbed by any dream of where he was to come. But the river had an awful look. The buildings on the banks were muffled in black shrouds, and the reflected lights seemed to originate deep in the water, as if the specters of suicides were holding them to show where they went down. The wild moon and clouds were as restless as evil conscience in a tumbled bed, and the very shadow of the immensity of London seemed to lie oppressively upon the river. Between the bridge and the two great theatres there was but a distance of a few hundred paces. So the theatres came next, grim and black within, at night, whose great dry wells, and lonesome to imagine with the rows of faces faded out, the lights extinguished, and the seats all empty. One would think that nothing in them knew itself at such a time but York's skull. In one of my night walks, as the church steeples were making the march winds and rains with the strokes of four, I passed the outer boundary of one of these great deserts and entered it. With a dim lantern in my hand, I groped my well-known way to the stage and looked over the orchestra which was like a great grave dug for a time of pestilence, into the void beyond. A dismal cavern of immense aspect, with the chandelier gone dead like everything else, and nothing visible through, 
through mist and fog and space but tears of winding sheets the ground at my feet where when last there i had seen the peasantry of naples dancing among the vines reckless of burning mountain which threatened to overwhelm them was now in possession of a strong serpent of engine hose watchfully lying in wait for the serpent fire and ready to fly at it if it showed its forked tongue a ghost of a watchman carrying a faint corpse candle haunted the distant upper gallery and flitted away retiring within the proscenium and holding my light above my head towards the rolled-up curtain green no more but black as ebony my sight lost itself in a gloomy vault showing faint indications in it of a shipwreck of canvas and cordage methought i felt much as a diver might at the bottom of the sea in those small hours when there was no movement in the sheets it afforded matter for reflection to take newgate in the way and touching its rough stone to think of the prisoners in their sleep and then to glance in at the lodge over the spiked wicket and see the fire and light of the watching turnkeys on the white wall not an inappropriate time either to linger by that wicked little debtor's door shutting tighter than any other door one ever saw which has been death's door to so many in the days of the uttering of forged one-pound notes by people tempted up from the country how many hundreds of wretched creatures of both sexes many quite innocent swung out of a pitiless an inconsistent world with the tower of yonder christian church of st sepulchre monstrously before their eyes is there any haunting of the bank parlor by the remorseful souls of old directors in the nights of these later days i wonder or is it as quiet as this degenerate aceldama of old bailey to walk on the bank lamenting the good old times and bemoaning the present evil period would be an easy next step so i would take it and would make my houseless circuit of the bank and give a thought to the treasure within likewise to the guard of soldiers passing the night there and nodding over the fire next i went to billingsgate in some hope of market people but it proving as yet too early crossed london's bridge and got down by the waterside on the surrey shore among the buildings of the great brewery there was plenty going on at the brewery and the reek and the smell of grains and the rattling of the plump dray horses at their mangers were capital company quite refreshed by having mingled with this good society i made a new start with a new heart setting the old king's bench prison before me for my next object and resolving when i should come to the walk to think of poor horace kench and the dry rot in men a very curious disease the dry rot in men and difficult to detect the beginning of it had carried horace kench inside the wall of the old king's bench prison and it had carried him out with his feet foremost he was a likely man to look at in the prime of life well to do as clever as he needed to be and popular among many friends 
he was suitably married and he had healthy and pretty children but like some fair-looking houses or fair-looking ships he took the dry rot the first strong external revelation of the dry rot in men is a tendency to lurk and lounge to be at street corners without intelligible reason to be going anywhere when met to be about many places rather than at any to do nothing tangible but to have an intention of performing a variety of intangible duties to-morrow or the day after to do nothing tangible i made a new start with a new heart setting the old king's bench prison before me for my next object and resolving when i should come to the wall to think of poor horace kinch and the dry rot and men a very curious disease the dry rot and men and difficult to detect the beginning of it had carried horace kinch inside the wall of the old king's bench prison and it had carried him out with his feet foremost he was a likely man to look at in the prime of life well to do as clever as he needed to be and popular among many friends he was suitably married and had health and pretty children but like some fair-looking houses or fair-looking ships he took the dry rot the first strong external revelation of the dry rot in men is a tendency to lurk and to lounge to be at street corners without intelligible reason to be going anywhere when met to be about many places rather than at any to do nothing tangible but to have an intention of performing a variety of intangible duties to-morrow or the day after when this manifestation of the disease is observed the observer will usually connect it with a vague impression once formed or received that the patient was living a little too hard he will scarcely have leisure to turn it over in his mind and form the terrible suspicion dry rot when he will notice a change for the worst in the patient's appearance a certain slovenliness and deterioration which is not poverty nor dirt nor intoxication nor ill health but simply dry rot to this succeeds a smell as of strong waters in the morning to that a looseness respecting money to that a stronger smell as of strong waters at all times to that a looseness respecting everything to that a trembling of the limbs a solemnity a somnolency misery and crumbling to pieces as it is in wood so it is in men dry rot advances at a compound usury quite incalculable a plank is found infected with it and the whole structure is devoured thus it had been with the unhappy horace kinch lately buried by a small subscription those who knew him had not nigh done seeing so well off so comfortably established with such hope before him and yet it is feared with a slight touch of dry rot when lo the man was all dry rot and dust from the dead wall associated with those houseless nights with this too common story i choose next to wander by bethlehem hospital partly because it lay on my road to westminster 
partly because I had a night fancy in my head which could be best pursued within sight of its walls and dome, and the fancy was this. Are not the sane and the insane equal at night, as the sane lie a-dreaming? Are not all of us outside this hospital who dream, more or less in the condition of those inside it, every night of our lives? Are we not nightly persuaded, as they daily are, that we associate preposterously with kings and queens, emperors and empresses, and nobilities of all sorts? Do we not nightly jumble events and personages and times and places as these do daily? Are we not sometimes troubled by our own sleeping inconsistencies? And do we not vexedly try to account for them, or excuse them, just as these do sometimes in respect of their waking delusions? Said an afflicted man to me when I was last in a hospital like this, Sir, I can frequently fly. I was half ashamed to reflect that so could I, by night said a woman to me on the same occasion, Queen Victoria frequently comes to dine with me, and Her Majesty and I dine off peaches and macaroni in our nightgowns, and His Royal Highness the Prince Consort does us the honour to make a third on horseback in a field marshal's uniform. Could I refrain from reddening with consciousness when I remembered the amazing royal parties I myself had given at night, the unaccountable viands I had put on table, and my extraordinary manner of conducting myself on those distinguished occasions, I wondered that the great master who knew everything, when he called sleep the death of each day's life, did not call dreams the insanity of each day's sanity. By this time I had left the hospital behind me, and was again getting towards the river, and in a short breathing space I was on Westminster Bridge, regaling my houseless eyes with the external walls of the British Parliament, the perfection of a stupendous institution I know, and the admiration of all surrounding nations and succeeding ages. I do not doubt, but perhaps a little the better now and then for being pricked up to its work. Turning off into Old Palace Yard, the courts of law kept me company for a quarter of an hour, hinting in low whispers what numbers of people they were keeping awake, and how intensely wretched and horrible they were rendering the small hours to unfortunate suitors. Westminster Abbey was fine, gloomy society for another quarter of an hour, suggesting a wonderful procession of its dead among the dark arches and pillars each century more amazed by the century following it than by all the centuries going before and indeed in those houseless night walks which even included cemeteries where watchmen went round among the graves at stated times and moved the tell-tale handle of an index which recorded that they had touched it at such an hour it was a solemn consideration what enormous host of dead belonged to one old great city and how, if they were raised while the living slept, there would not be space of a pin's point in all the streets and ways for the living to come out into. Not only that, but the vast armies of dead would overflow the hills and valleys beyond the city, and would stretch away all around it, God knows how far. 
when a church clock strikes on houseless ears in the dead of the night it may be at first mistaken for company and hailed as such but as the spreading circles of vibration which you may perceive at such a time with great clearness go opening out for ever and ever afterwards widening perhaps as the philosopher has suggested in eternal space the mistake is rectified and the sense of loneliness is profounder once it was after leaving the abbey and turning my face north i came to the great steps of st martin's church as the clock was striking three suddenly a thing that in a moment more i should have trodden upon without seeing rose up at my feet with a cry of loneliness and houselessness struck out of it by the bell the like of which i never heard we then stood face to face looking at one another frightened by one another the creature was like a beetle-browed hare-lipped youth of twenty and it had a loose bundle of rags on which it held together with one of its hands it shivered from head to foot and its teeth chattered and as it stared at me persecutor devil ghost whatever it thought me it made with its whining mouth as if it were snapping at me like a worried dog intending to give this ugly object money i put out my hand to stay it for it recoiled as if it whined and snapped and laid my hand upon its shoulder instantly it twisted out of its garment like the young man in the new testament and left me standing there alone with its rags in my hands covet gardens market when it was market morning was wonderful company the great wagons of cabbages with growers men and boys lying asleep under them and with sharp dogs from market garden neighborhoods looking after the whole were as good as a party but one of the worst night sights i know in london is to be found in the children who prowl about this place who sleep in the baskets fight for the awful dart at any object they think they can lay their thieving hands on dive under the carts and barrows dodge the constables and are perpetually making a blunt pattering on the pavement of the piazza with the rain of their naked feet a painful and unnatural result comes of the comparison one is forced to institute between the growth of corruption as displayed in the so much improved and cared for fruits of the earth and the growth and corruption as displayed in these all uncared for except inasmuch as ever hunted savages there was early coffee to be got about covet garden market and that was more company warm company too which was better toast of a very substantial quality was likewise procurable though the tousled-headed man who made it in an inner chamber within the coffee-room hadn't got his coat on yet and was so heavy with sleep that in every interval of toast and coffee he went off anew behind the partition into the complicated crossroads of choke and snore and lost his way directly into one of these establishments among the earliest near bow street there came one morning as i sat over my houseless cup pondering where to go next a man in a high and long snuff-colored coat and shoes and to the best of my belief nothing else but a hat 
who took out of his hat a large cold meat pudding, a meat pudding so large that it was a very tight fit, and brought the lining of the hat out with it. This mysterious man was known by his pudding, for, on his entering, the man of sleep brought him a pint of hot tea, a small loaf, and a large knife, and fork, and plate. Left to himself in his box, he stood the pudding on the bare table, and instead of cutting it, stabbed it overhand with a knife, like a mortal enemy, then took the knife out, wiped it on his sleeve, tore the pudding asunder with his fingers, and ate it all up. The remembrance of this man with the pudding remained with me, as the remembrance of the most spectral person my houselessness encountered. Twice only was I in that establishment, and twice I saw him stalk in, as I should say, just out of bed and presently going back to bed, take out his pudding, stab his pudding, wipe the dagger, and eat his pudding all up. He was a man whose figure promised cadaverousness, but who had an excessively red face, as though shaped like a horse's. On the second occasion of my seeing him, he said huskily to the man of sleep, "'Am I red to-night?' "'You are,' he uncompromisingly answered. "'My mother,' said the spectre, "'was a red-faced woman that liked to drink, "'and I looked at her hard when she was laid in her coffin, "'and I took the complexion somehow.' "'Somehow the pudding seemed an unwholesome pudding after that, "'and I put myself in its way no more.' When there was no market, or when I wanted variety, a railway terminus with the morning mails coming in was remunerative company, but like most of the company to be had in this world, it lasted only a very short time. The station lamps would burst out ablaze, the porters would emerge from the places of concealment, the cabs and trucks would rattle to their places. The post-office carts were already in theirs, and finally the bell would strike up and the train would come banging in. But there were few passengers and little luggage, and everything scuttled away with the greatest expedition. The locomotive post-offices, with their great nets, as if they had been dragging the country for bodies, would fly open as to their doors, and would disgorge a smell of lamp and exhausted clerk, a guard in a red coat, and their bags of letters. The engine would blow and heave and perspire like an engine wiping its forehead and saying what a run it had had, and within ten minutes the lamps were out, and I was houseless and alone again. But now there were driven cattle on the high road near, wanting as cattle always do, to turn into the midst of stone walls and squeeze themselves through six inches width of iron railing, and getting their heads down, also as cattle always do, for tossing purchase at quite imaginary dogs, and giving themselves and every devoted creature associated with them a most extraordinary amount of unnecessary trouble. Now, too, the conscious gas began to grow pale, with the knowledge that daylight was coming, and straggling workpeople were already in the streets, and as waking life had become extinguished with the last pieman's sparks, so it began to be rekindled with the fires of the first street-corner breakfast-sellers, and so by faster and faster degrees, until the last degrees were very fast, the day came, and I was tired and could sleep. But it is not as I used to think. 
going home at such times the least wonderful thing in london that in the real desert region of the night the houseless wanderer is alone there i knew well enough where to find vice and misfortune of all kinds if i had chosen but they were put out of sight and my houselessness had many miles upon miles of streets in which it could and did have its own solitary way End of chapter 13 Recording by Jeannie Whitfield